Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and I'm so glad that you're here today. Just so you know, this is not a typical episode. This is uh, a part of a series on the book of Genesis. It's a verse-by-verse with Christian apologetics in mind. So there is actually an entire playlist on our uh, YouTube channel that you can check out, and you can also go to uh, trinityradio.org and click on the verse-by-verse to get them as audio only, and you can go listen to them till your heart's content. But if you're used to coming here because of the um, sort of uh, responses to atheists that I do, uh, that's not what this is. This is a verse by verse through the book of Genesis. But I think it could be a great blessing to you if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I think it could be helpful in understanding uh, what we Christians think is God's word. All right. So today what we're going to do is we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 31. We finished up Genesis chapter 30 last time. And what we got to was... um, a point where it became clear that uh, you know Jacob's had the kids that he's going to have there with Laban in uh, his the father of his wives Rachel and Leah, and it's time to go. But he's been working for six years to um, keep Laban's flock, and the flock is going to be divided between Laban and Jacob. And the way that they're going to do this is they've decided that whatever flock, uh, whatever of the flock have discolored or um, unusually colored fur or striping or, or, or spots, I guess, or something like that, then those are going to be Jacob's. So that it'll be very clear. And that's where we left off last time. And now we pick up in Genesis chapter 31. And let's, uh, let, we're going to get to that in just a minute. But I want to say as we're beginning here, um, that there is a kind of a theme I want us to draw out of this. Um, and, and right now we are at, we are living in a day and age in which reputation is extremely important for the believer. I mean, it always has been, we should guard our reputation. We should try to live the lives that would be pleasing to God so that our reputations are, are clean and that we are above reproach. Um, and now we are seeing, we are living in a day where, um, that is, It's always important. It's not more important now than it was before. But we can say this, when when Christians have moral failings, it is much more public because of the nature of the Internet and things like that. And so uh, we've been seeing a lot of that lately. It's sad, but we have recently seen examples of at least two well-known evangelical spokespersons who strongly have, it seems strongly, have had moral failings. And it seriously hurts our witness. When Christians fall, the world is watching. Um, not because otherwise they necessarily would have been too much too, too concerned about the sinful activity. Sometimes they would. Depends on what it is. But because of who we are and what we stand for. Um, regarding one of these individuals that recently fell, or it seems has recently fallen, multiple non-Christians on Twitter, Twitter said things like, I don't care how weird his sex life was, that's fine. But when you're preaching sexual purity, that makes you a hypocrite. Yeah, but they're watching, not necessarily because of the sin, but because of who we are and what we're supposed to stand for. Someone who is a microcosm of this came to my mind because we recently... Um, uh, so we've got a person who has been, who is a graduate of our school and who talks to us pretty regularly, who has a son who ha- is about my age and has been in and out of prison his whole life. And this, this man that's our, that's, that's a graduate of the school is a wonderful man, but he's got this son that's just been in and out of prison. And certain times I've tried to help him and, um, I've been around him and, and we've talked a lot about what prison life is like. And this is what he told me about when a Christian goes to prison, someone claiming to be a Christian. And I've had this confirmed by employees of the prison 
prison system who've said, yeah, that's true, is that um, in many prisons, at least, whenever someone comes in claiming to be a Christian, they'll pretty well be left alone. No one's going to bother them or hurt them, but they're going to watch them. And if that individual claimed to be a Christian turns out not to um, live up to biblical Christianity, then it's going to be very bad for that person. Um, in ways that you can probably imagine, because there is some sort of a certain level of respect in the ethics of the prison economy there. But if you are a hypocrite, this is as low on the totem pole as you can possibly be. And so as a result, they're going to watch you, but it's going to be bad for you. And that is kind of a microcosm of what we see in the world today. The world is watching us. And if you are living in and not of the world, but yet it turns out that you are living a bit of the world, that you are a hypocrite, well, that moral failing is going to be plastered all over everywhere. And so reputation is extremely important. Thankfully, we do have people like Billy Graham, William Lane Craig, and Fred Rogers, who are Christians who seem to be above reproach. And people have tried in every way to find dirt on those guys and never have been able to do it. And we need those champions like that as well. But they serve as the antithesis. They show what it should be like, ideally, and when men and women have good reputations. This passage we're looking at today is a narrative passage, so it doesn't have this as a theme. But I do want you to think about reputation and how important it is to our witness as we move through this text. Because Jacob, Jacob's reputation is an important aspect of what we're going to be looking at today. Jacob, like all of us, is an imperfect person, and that's certainly true. So he's brought some things on himself. But at the same time, at this point, he's trying to do what God wants him to do. And how does his reputation fare? And what can we learn about it as we look at this at this important time in our history as Christians in the 21st century? So let's look at Genesis chapter 31 and verse 1. And it says, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Now this is Laban's sons. This is the man he's been you know, working for. This is the father of his wives, Rachel and Leah. And he heard Jacob's Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what belonged to our father, he has made all this wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly like it used to be. So at this point, these are two men who don't have a lot of reason to trust each other. And what what Laban is so what what's happening here is God has been blessing Jacob as we saw in the last chapter as we're going to see in more detail in this chapter such that the flocks as they were born with the coloring and stuff turned out to favor Jacob such that he's gotten most of the flock it looks like he hasn't done anything wrong we find out God's been doing this for him as a blessing to Jacob at this point um, but yet Jacob's or Laban's sons, who are obviously part of the family inheritance and don't want their dad to be done wrong. They're looking at this and they're seeing Jacob basically as a thief. He has taken away all that was our father's and what belonged to our father has made all his wealth. And there's a bad attitude in the family toward Jacob. And they're saying this, Th- this, this presents a problem for Jacob's reputation, even though he's doing the right thing. And that's an important uh, thing that I want us to understand. Uh, Robert Jameson and David Brown and A.R. Fawcett in their commentary, critical and explanatory on the whole Bible, volume one, say, quote, It is always one of the vexations attendant on worldly prosperity that it excites the envy of others. They're saying that about this passage, about this issue. 
Um, and of course, the Bible elsewhere teaches that. In Ecclesiastes 4, 4, it says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Uh, this too is vanity and striving after wind. It's Ecclesiastes 4, 4. But the commentators go on and say, and that however careful a man is to maintain a good, now listen to this, no matter how careful a man is to maintain a good conscience, he cannot always reckon on maintaining a good name in a censorious world. Does that, does that not feel relevant for what we're going through right now? This Jacob experienced, and it is probable that, like a good man, he had asked direction and relief in prayer. So these commentators are trying to point out, look, Jacob's trying to do the right thing at this point, and he's been seeking God in prayer probably about these things, trying to figure out what to do. And yet, because of the envy of these other people who are looking at his prosperity and God's blessing on his lives, uh, on his life, that there's a strong indication they could damage his reputation. And of course, that's it says that they're going around saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And what I want you to get away from this is, unfortunately, though we want to take care of our reputation and we want to make sure that we are guarding it against um, our own mistakes, you know, we, we don't want to sin and, and damage our own reputation. Of course, that's what we have direct control over and should try to make sure that's right. It's still the case that, that, that when you're trying to do what God wants you to do, you still may face damage to your reputation, even if, that, even if you're trying to do everything right because of what other people accuse you of and say about you. That's why these commentators say, however careful a man is to maintain a good conscience, he cannot always reckon on maintaining a good name. And that is just so true. And we see that um, really obviously in the culture today. It used to be primarily uh, among ministers. Uh, you know, I grew up in a minister's family and I've been doing some kind of uh, vocational ministry since I was, since I was, you know, 18, 19 years old in the late nineties. And it used to be the case that what people would say is you got to be really careful in the ministry because it doesn't have to be true. What someone says about you, the mere accusation of something can be enough to ruin your reputation in the eyes of others. And I mean, that that's absolutely true. And because here's the thing, if someone accuses you of some kind of sexual impropriety as a minister of the gospel or as a pastor or something or an evangelist, but let's take a pastor. Well, even if it's not true, if you can't prove that you're innocent, which is extremely difficult to do, um, if you can't prove that you're innocent, there is this seed of doubt that's there among the people to whom you're trying to minister. And it's not fair if it's not true. And, and, and people sitting in the pews who are putting themselves under your ministry, listening to you expound the word of God and explain it to them. If they have some reason to question that what you're saying is uh, that, that, that your reputation is true and you're pastoring them and you're the one at their bedside when they're sick and you're the one that might be giving them advice based on God's word. Um, that mere doubt can uh, really seriously hinder, if not destroy, the entire relationship between a pastor and a person to whom he's trying to minister. And so it used to be that this was just said to pastors that, man, all it takes is the mere accusation. So that's why you should never be alone with a woman that's not your wife. That's why, um, you know, be careful about, you know, who's at your house and, and what you're doing and all those kind of things. And that is all true. That is all true. But now it's not just ministers. Now, with the Me Too movement, which is happening right now and has been for the past several years, it's true in the culture at large. And it's true for uh, celebrities, even non-Christian celebrities and politicians and people like that. And that mere accusation can destroy someone. 
Now, let me just be very cautious in how I say this. I think that the Me Too movement, for example, has been actually a good thing in, in the regard that there have been many women who actually were experiencing sexual harassment or abuse or something like that. And because of the Me Too movement and being able to just put hashtag Me Too, it has allowed them the freedom and, and given them the courage and impetus to come out about things that perhaps they wouldn't have come out about or felt ashamed to come out about or afraid of what it would do to their reputation or that they wouldn't be believed. And so that side of it has been a good thing. There is no question about that. Um, so I don't want to take anything away from that. On the other hand, it is true, and it just happens to illustrate my point, that there have been people falsely accused, and it has utterly destroyed their lives. All you have to do is do a quick Google search, and, and there's I think Forbes has an article from this year on the dark side of the Me Too movement, what happens to men that are falsely accused. And of course, um, that that is very damaging to people who are not in ministry, just people, maybe not even be Christians. And so the accusation that uh, people can bring against you can um, can destroy or harm your reputation, even if you are trying to follow the Lord as best you can. And of course, that's what seems to be happening here to Jacob. And so that's something we just have to live with. And in those moments, we just look to God and say, I know you're in control. I'm going to keep serving you no matter how it looks to everyone else. And it's not always going to be easy. Think about Noah um, <laughs> on the ark, not exactly the same situation, but we always see a picture of Noah's ark and it seems to be a happy picture. They adorn church nurseries with Noah's ark. And if you look at it, it's always happy, sunshining, not a rain droplet in the sky and all the animals are smiling. And, um, and mama Noah is always got Valentine's around her head, which has got to be sexist. And she's looking out at Papa Noah because she's just in love with him. And there's Papa Noah out on the front of the ark with a big white fluffy beard and rosy red cheeks. And he looks like Santa Claus and Robert Redford all wrapped up into one gorgeous man. And he's so happy to be out there on that ark. And there's always a big old goofy giraffe just looking around, smiling at everyone. Is that what Noah's Ark was like in the Bible? No, it was a miserable place. The only joy Noah had was the joy of knowing he was where God wanted him to be and doing what God wanted him to do. And serving the Lord sometimes when your reputation is damaged, the only joy you'll have is the joy of knowing you are where God wants you to be and doing what God wants you to do and know that you may be shamed in the eyes of the world. But like Paul says, um, that uh, you, you don't, you're not shamed in the eyes of God and you're not ashamed of the gospel that you're preaching. And so those kind of dam that kind of damage to your reputation can come. But let's keep trying here and see what else we can learn. Verse three says, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Think about those words, how comforting those would be to Jacob and comforting to anyone who is trying to follow God and go where God wants them to go and do what God wants them to do. Verse four. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field. Now he probably calls them out to the field so that no one will hear what was going on. I mean, he's about to lay out this plan that we got to get out of here. God has revealed it to me that we got to go and we're going to go. And it's not going to be cool because you know, this thing has been spreading that I'm basically ripping off uh, Laban, even though Laban knows and everyone else should know what the, what the stipulations were. Um, I'm, we, we got to get out of here. And he calls them out to the field so that there's no servants who can hear. I mean, remember, this is a tent-based civilization, and people can hear no matter how quiet you're trying to be, and word travels fast. So he calls them out to the field, and he could probably cover by calling them out to the field that perhaps he needs help with something related to the sheep, the shearing of the sheep or something like that. And so he calls them out there to the field, and he tells them, uh, well, what does he tell them? Verse 5, and says to them, I see your father's attitude, and it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. Now, that's interesting that he says here, the God of my father. 
rather than God or my God. Why does he say the God of my father? I wonder why he says that at this point, especially when God is obviously acting for his benefit in his life. Well, we're going to come back to that in just a bit. Uh, verse six, you know um, that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my ways 10 times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. Now, first of all, another reason why he would need to tell the wives, other than the fact that they're going to have to go with him, is he wants them to go with him, you know, understandably. He wants to make it clear that the reason we're doing this is um, that, that, you know, principally one reason is that he's been, you know, he's been, I've served him faithfully and he's been trying to, you know, he's been not playing fair with me in terms of our business practices. And what is this business thing? What is he talking about changed his wages 10 times? This is actually kind of funny, honestly, because what it appears that has been happening is Laban kept changing the financial agreement over the past six years while these animals are being born because apparently it wasn't turning out to his favor. It wasn't turning out well for him. The way the flock was producing was favoring Jacob. So Laban keeps changing the arrangement. But every time he does, God changes what's getting produced so that it always keeps favoring Jacob. It's like he's fighting directly against God, and you don't ever want to be in that sort of a situation. It's a very handy thing to have God on your side, and we should keep that in mind. But that's kind of funny to me. And in fact, there's a theme here. I mean, it could be that the author wants us to see a certain humorous aspect to the story that's, that's going on here. Uh, verse 8 says, If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. You see, this is kind of funny. So Laban is fighting against God in this situation. It's so good to have God on your side. And it may not always feel like God is on your side. Um, but we, we know that, that God, is, uh, God does care for us. And in the end, we certainly know that whatever happens in this world, um, we have the promises of God for the world to come. Uh, see, and also another thing I want you to get, get from this is in the last, if, you, if you're just listening to this video, I haven't seen the previous video, maybe you won't get this or understand this, but um, these practices, so Jacob peeling these stripes and putting them in the water trough and these animals looking at it and all that, there is this suggestion that there's something superstitious going on, that Jacob was trying to use a superstitious means to produce the right kind of flock to rip off Laban. But you see, I promised you last chapter, and you see it now, that no, God was the one controlling this, and God actually has to explain it to Jacob here. We're going to get to that in just a moment. So this all just kind of, and God's changing things such that it always comes to Jacob's favor. So you see, there's nothing, the Bible is not endorsing some superstition where Jacob is using uh, outdated ancient farming practices that, he, and then like speaking as though that's true when we know that it's not. No, God is controlling how these flocks are being born. Um, so let's, let's get to that right now. Thus God has taken, verse 9, away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream and behold, the male goats, which were mating were striped, speckled and modded, modeled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. He said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats, which are mating are striped, speckled and modeled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. 
where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me, now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. Again, God is having to explain all of this to Jacob, how all this worked uh, with the, with the, um, with the flocks and, and why they produced the way that they did. So it doesn't match this uh, claim that, that Jacob was using um, superstitious practices. Uh, verse 14, Rachel and Leah said to him, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has, has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which was God, uh, which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Uh, this is really good for Jacob because, like we said, J Jacob's probably called them out here partly because we've got to get this operation and do it quietly. But he's also got to justify this operation of leaving and getting out of Dodge to Rachel and Leah. And so this must come as a relief. That, no, no, no. We're, yeah, let's do this. So we, we get that. Uh, then Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels. And... Um, he drove away all his livestock, all his property, which he had gathered, his acquired livestock, which he had gathered in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father, Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. So now, first of all, that's why Laban's unaware that Jacob's taking off, first of all. But then we get this thing about Rachel stealing the household idols. What's that all about? Now, some translations call these gods. The word used is teraphim. Teraphim, you might make a note of that. And according to the 15th century BC Nuzi tablets, these may have been symbols indicating inheritance rights. That's what archaeologists on the basis of these tablets think that the teraphim probably are. By having these, you could claim rights to certain goods. Um, if that's right, she may have stolen them so that Joseph, her only son at the time anyway, could later claim inheritance rights, even though that never ends up coming about. So it could be that she still somewhat um, has some sort of appreciation for these gods of her father Laban. It could be that she's trying to, to gain access to these things that can get her the inheritance rights for Jacob or for Joseph later on. Um, but, but these are thought not to be objects of worship by archaeologists. So even though it says idols, they're, they're trinkets or, or you know, kind of things like Steve Gregg, um, uh, who's a sometimes professor here at Trinity, says that, you, know, you could think of it like a scepter you know, would, would give you certain rights and open certain doors for you. But here's another thing. Try to put yourself in Rachel's shoes while we're talking about reputation here. I mean, this is obviously not the right move, and it's going to cause problems later. But she, she's got deceivers all around her. Her father's a deceiver. Her husband has been a deceiver. And according to John Wolverd in his Bible Knowledge Commentary, quote, perhaps she told herself she deserved these since Laban had turned the, ta the tables on her in the name of custom and had deprived her of her right to marry first. Whatever the reason, her hard-headed self-interest almost brought disaster, end quote. So um, th there's, uh, you know, th this tells us something that can, has to do with our reputations as well, I think. So that's very interesting, first of all, just on a background, Bible background sort of understanding about the teraphim. And it tells us something about Rachel. But, but here's the thing. This does nearly destroy things later for Jacob, as we're going to see. And it wasn't because of something he did. At this point, he's doing what God's telling him to do. The reason it nearly destroys things for, for Jacob is because of what someone in his family was doing that he doesn't even know anything about. 
And it could have looked really bad for him in terms of his reputation. In fact, it did. Laban thinks that Jacob's aware of this, or at least someone in Jacob's crew. So that brings up a couple of things. Um, first of all, let me give you a bigger corporate sort of thing, um, and then we'll get a little more specific to your life. So right now I'm the president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. And that means I've had to learn a lot of things about running a business because Trinity is a ministry, but it's also a business. It occupies this weird spot as a school business ministry sort of hybrid. Um, and that has its own complications. But one thing that uh, is the result of that is the president of the organization is supposed to have knowledge of everything. Well, no, that's not right. Let me put it this way, is responsible for knowing what's going on in the organization such that if someone who's doing finances and is taking care of certain things related to the IRS, for example, is doing something there, uh, is not doing something that they should be, is failing in some obligation to the IRS, and that person is doing that on behalf of the organization, if that turns out bad, if, if that happens, the president is going to be held responsible even though it may be that the president has no way of knowing that. It's someone in his family, so to speak, right? He doesn't even know anything about it, but he's responsible. It affects his reputation. This is why organizations will sometimes hire outside auditors, third-party auditors, to come in and check things out. But what if an organization doesn't have money for outside auditors? The, the head of the organization... Uh, his reputation may be destroyed because of what's going on down the line somewhere that he do just doesn't have a way of knowing unless he knows for sure that everyone's being honest with him and doing what they're supposed to do. Let's bring it a little more close to home. In your family, you have children, and your children can be very damaging to your reputation, um, even though they may be doing things that you don't even know about. I'll never forget when I was very young, I, I don't know how old, let's say six, maybe seven. It's an early memory that I have. I was at my grandmother's house and being a punk little kid, I was out there. It's like a country road. Hardly anybody's coming through, but every two or three minutes, a car might come by and uh, she had a gravel driveway and I was picking up rocks and throwing them at cars as they came by. Now, I wasn't like a mean kid. What sort of boneheaded kid does this and thinks it's okay? But I was a little boy and I was being a punk and I was throwing these rocks at a car. Well, one of these cars stops and the guy walks over and doesn't walk to me, walks straight into my father and begins to chew my father out. My father's reputation had taken a momentary hit because of something his son was doing that he didn't have any clue about. And he, my father wasn't doing anything wrong. It's okay to let boys play and girls to play outside, right? You can't watch them all the time. But it's an example of how your kids can affect your reputation even when, uh, you know, you don't know anything about it. And that's something. And that's another reason why we need to make sure that we try to raise our children right. Um, I just recently read uh, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. And whatever you think about Jordan Peterson, one of the rules for life that I think is great is don't let your kids do things that makes you dislike them. And uh, that's pretty important because you may put up with it because you love them, but soon they're going to go out into a world that doesn't love them as much as you do and doesn't care to tell them how it is and dress them down and maybe treat them badly because they're being little punks that throw rocks at cars. And so uh, we need to make sure we do as much as we can for our kids obviously because that's what God wants us to do and obviously for their benefit, but also for our own reputations. It's no mistake that um, ministers are to be people who are in control to with their family, uh, you know, as best they can be. Now, if you're a minister, 
um, who, who has an adult child who's um, gotten into all kinds of sin understand that even in the Bible, we have examples of godly parents who had ungodly children and ungodly parents who had godly children. And so I think when it gets to adulthood, there's, there's a bit of a difference there. But in terms of what's going on in your house, make sure that you're the kind of parent that you ought to be and pray for me because right now I've got two young daughters and I'm doing everything I can and I'm probably failing a lot of the time, but I'm trying. So we can pray for each other that way. All right, so we see there an example where reputation has been damaged because of something that someone in Jacob's family does and not Jacob himself. Verse 20, and Jacob deceived Laban, the uh, Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Now, this would not necessarily be a devious move. I know it says deceived there, um, but for him to leave like this, I know, I know it says that, but because we don't know what Jacob was contractually obligated, we don't know that he was contractually obligated to stay. He had put, now, this is an interesting thing. He had put three days between his crew and Laban. So that's a good head start. The problem is that herding sheep is slow going. And it would take at least 10 days to get to his destination. So Laban would have a good chance to catch up because he's not herding sheep. He's going after Jacob and Jacob's got the sheep and Laban did catch him. But it's actually not so hard to see that in seven days time, as it is, that Laban caught up with Jacob. It's actually more surprising that Jacob got as far as he did. It was like 400, 500 miles. People speculate between four and 500 miles. So that was just under 50 miles a day herding sheep, which is doable, I guess, if you're herding day and night, which if he's herding day and night, he's, it's clear that this is because he's terrified. Jacob is terrified of being caught by Laban and his servants. And you might say, well, why is he terrified if God's obviously working with him? Well, it's one thing to say on a nice placard that you get from a Christian bookstore and hang in your house that you, you don't have to be afraid if you're following God. And that is true. Um, but we are human beings and is at least understandable that sometimes even when we're doing what God wants us to do, there's a certain amount of stress involved in doing what God wants you to do. Um, I can tell you that financially, um, as a guy who's running an institution of higher education, it's, there are times of stress. At the same time, I can, I can really praise God that especially at times where we, it was really tight financially, sometimes a, an amount of money came through um, from an unexpected source that to the cent covered what Trinity needed for that day. That's an amazing, amazing thing. Um, and so that's why one of these things about prayer, you know, atheists are always talking about it. Um, prayer, well, prayer, prayer has been shown not to work any better than chance and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there's problems with all those studies, but let me just tell you, as a person who's lived it, um, and maybe it takes decades of praying and watching, there are far too many and far too many examples of extreme answered prayer um, for me to buy into this uh, garbage. But there's times of stress, even when you're trying to follow God. I, you know, a few years years ago, two years ago, I was in Turkey, the the, the nation of Turkey. And uh, I was there for a month, but the last four days that I was there, I was there alone in Istanbul. Nobody, no family, no contacts, just there completely alone, just the way the flights turned out to be cheapest. And it was kind of exciting. You know, you're in a, an interesting place. It's a Muslim-dominated country, though it's technically a secular country. And um, uh, I, I got on a um, ferry that I thought was taking me right over there, but in actuality, 
I, I couldn't understand. And it took me way off somewhere to another land. And I thought I could be in Greece for all I know, you know. Um, and I got off and I was walking along and a police officer spoke to me. Well, what everyone had taught us was that with vendors, you know, like people selling stuff everywhere, street vendors, and, and that you're just supposed to say later, later. You know, don't say no thank you because they'll try to sell harder. Just say later. And like, maybe I'll come back later. And this guy spoke to me in Turkish. One thing I've learned is with this face and this color beard and this color complexion, I fit in in a lot of places as a local. I fit in in Australia, obviously. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Caucasian. Much of it is Caucasian. So I fit in there. I fit in in um, Israel. Um, I fit in in Turkey. I certainly fit in in Ireland and most of your Western countries, but I fit in in Turkey. I look kind of like a Turkish guy, especially in Istanbul, where there's a European mixture, but that's neither here nor there. And um, I, I did that. Someone spoke to me in Turkish because I look, I guess I could pass for it. And I said, later, later. And then I felt an, a hand on my shoulder that, you know, twirled me around. And it was the police. And I'm completely in Turkey alone. And I said, English. And so he said, passport. So I give it to him. Well, it's not clear that you're going to be in any real danger if you're there as a Christian in Turkey. But Christian ministers sometimes get a, get a close look. And I, I, whether it was a rational fear or not, I began to think this is it, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. So even sometimes when you're serving God and you think you're doing what God wants you to do and going where God wants you to go, you can still be in a stressful moment. And so that's, that's a tough thing. Um, but that's what's happening here. All right. Uh, verse 22, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days journey. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban, the Aramean in a day, in a dream, uh, of the night and said to him, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. Now, this is an idiom of the time and basically means don't make any decisions about anything with Jacob. Let him decide. And verse 25, Laban caught up with Jacob. Now, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Now, don't tune this out because this is where it gets exciting. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? It's like you've stolen my daughters. Hold on. These are Jacob's wives, but Laban feels like it's like you've kidnapped them and take them away. Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy, with songs, with timbrel and with lyre and did not allow me to kiss my sons? He means his grandsons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me. Now he's saying the God of your father. He's like invoking the God of Jacob's father right? God. Um, now, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Where is it? Um, now you, uh, the, yeah, the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob replied. Now, before we go on, you notice that there's two reasons Laban's giving. Um, I just wanted to throw a big celebration and say bye to you and hug and kiss my daughters and my grandsons. But here you just took off. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then secondly, you, why'd you steal my household teraphim, the teraphim there? Um, then Jacob replied to Laban, because I was afraid for, I thought your God shall not live. Wait, well, hold on a second. Because I was afraid for, I thought, sorry, that you would take your daughter's 
from me by force. Now, that's the answer to why did I leave without letting you kiss and hug him goodbye and throw a party? He, uh, here's the answer to the question about the gods, uh, the teraphim, the household you know, inheritance teraphim. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Now that's pretty serious. I mean, Jacob's like, we didn't steal anything. Go look, look through all our stuff. And whoever took it, that person can die. Now he wouldn't have probably been so resolute if he knew that it was Rachel. And we don't have any reason necessarily to think that Laban would kill Rachel over this. Like he would probably wouldn't take him up on it, but it would still be bad. And um, maybe he would take Rachel back with him. Who knows? Verse 33. So, Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of two of the maids. Now, this is written in a way that clearly the author wants you to have your suspense built. I mean, the Bible's just good literature, man. This builds suspense. He's going into one tent. Is it going to be there? Because, you know, Jacob's probably not stressed, but we, the readers, know Rachel's got these teraphim. So this is a little bit stressful, a little bit tense. But he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Um, now, Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. Now, what's that all about? So the camels, so when you, so in this culture, when you have these camels, this is a monstrous animal. And so the saddle, as you can imagine, you may not have ever thought about it, isn't like a horse saddle. What it is, is it's actually more like a big structure I mean, it's quite a thing. It's like a piece of furniture. And, um, and so you, it, would, it would be big and sit up there on the camel so that you could sit on it. And even to this day, the Bedouins will take these big things off the camel and take it into their home, their living quarters or their tent, and set it down. And you can use it as a, as a chair, like a cushion, a place to sit in, in your tent that way. And it would have compartments in it, that maybe drawers or cabinets that you could put. I mean, it was a serious thing. And so she, had, they, she has this in the tent. And she's put these things in one of the compartments there under the seat, and she's sitting on it. And Laban, uh, uh, and Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of woman or of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Now, clever, clever Rachel here. She's saying, I'm on my period. I'm menstruating. And think about now, the, the, we're not living in the day uh, of the law of Moses yet, right? But still, it could have well been just an, an understanding in the culture about when a woman's on her period and she's sitting on something, that thing is unclean. You can't touch it. You can't sit on it. Or just don't bother me. Don't make me stand up because of this, you know, uh, uh, issue. And so um, he doesn't make her stand up. And so he doesn't bother with it. And so it goes through. So at this point, Jacob is feeling pretty high and mighty about this thing. Yeah, you didn't find it, did you? And so uh, what does he say? Well, he really spouts off. Verse 36, then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods and have you found, what have you found of all your household goods? Um. What have you found of all your household goods? Like, have you found anything that's yours? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us too. So this is, he's like, hey, we got an audience here. This ain't looking good for you, pal. You've made all kinds of accusations. 
These 20 years have I, now he's really ramping up here. I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn of beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was uh, by day, the heat consumed me and frost by night. And my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks. That's why we've been saying six years this whole time. And you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, that's, uh, by the way, an obscure thing to this text, the fear of Isaac. That's just a way of saying, you know, that Isaac worshiped God. He feared him had not been for me. Surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered judgment last night. Ah, you know, this is, he's really going off 20 years, 20 years, you know. Um, so Jacob is telling him off here, but we see now that Jacob was particularly good to Laban. Um, if something happened to one of the sheep dying by a wild animal, he paid for it himself. And it actually, you know, Maybe that was actually unreasonable burden Laban put on Jacob. Actually, it does look like that was a requirement that Laban gave to Jacob. He says, you required it of my hand that if something happens to one of these sheep, I got to pay for that. So he's not been a cool businessman. That was not the practice of the day. Now, if Jacob knew the truth here, he probably wouldn't have been so mouthy at this point. And it might be generally be good to temper your words, you know, as far as someone making you look bad, your reputation look bad because of go back to one of your kids. Um, there are these parents that think their kid is a little angel and never could do anything wrong. And that can be even further damaging to your reputation when you find out, no, your kid did do something wrong. And it makes you really have egg on your face. Here, Jacob did have someone in his household that did something wrong. It stole these household teraphim. And... Um, you know, and then another thing is, why spout off of the mouth and act all in like with righteous indignation about your morality and stuff when the truth is we none of us are as good as everybody else thinks we are. That's a good quote. Put that on a T-shirt. Nobody's as good as everybody else thinks they are. <laughs> so uh, we know our personal sins. We know our thought life. We know our own mistakes better than anybody else. I think about this whenever you get pulled over by for a speeding ticket. And you want to argue with the police. I wasn't speeding. I'm telling you I wasn't speeding. Show me the radar report. I want to see it. I wasn't speeding. Or you make up some excuse or something like that. Yeah, you feel so, you have this righteous indignation. You're so right, aren't you? Let's give you the benefit of the doubt and say you weren't speeding this time. Were you speeding yesterday? Were you speeding the day before that? See, you know the truth, right? You know that you've sped a lot of times and gotten away with it, right? Uh, but you feel all this righteous indignation because you didn't this time. Uh, yeah, just don't play that game. It's not, not generally good. Um, but again, Jacob says the God, Abraham, uh, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, he still hasn't said my God. Now, why is that? Why is he not appropriating God to be his God in the midst of all of this? Um, well, there's a reason for that. He had promised God that he would be his God if he allowed him to safely return. To Canaan, but he hasn't safely returned just yet. He's close, but he's not there yet. Excuse me. Verse 43. Then Laban replied to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters and the children are my children and the flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. 
But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to the children whom they have born? So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Jagar Sahudatha, but Jacob called it Galid. Now, both of these terms, Jagar, Sehudatha, and Galid mean the same thing, just in two different languages. Galid means heap of witnesses, and they both just called it that in their own languages. Laban said, the heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it, has, it was named Galid. And Mizpah, it's also been called Mizpah. For he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. Now, Mizpah, may the Lord watch between you and me when we're absent from one another. This is pretty funny, actually. This is pretty interesting. As you try to dig in like we're doing in this study to the biblical text, what you're often going to find is that there are people who misquote the Bible or rip it out of its context and act like it's saying something really nice and sweet when it's not. There's even a famous uh, like daily motivational Bible passage thing like promises from God or something. And one of them is from Satan, you know, so that got in there somehow. Well, that's not going on here, but I'll tell you something that is funny that's going on here. People have made jewelry out of this thing about Mizpah. In fact, I'm not endorsing this company. Don't know who they are or anything about them, but here's an example. Um, Mizpah, the Lord be with you. Uh, the Lord watch between me and thee when we are, um, aren't, uh, when we're away from each other. Right. Okay. Now, I want you to see this. This is jewelry. This is like, oh, how sweet, right? Oh, that's jewels of love, Mizpah jewels of love. That's their tagline. That's just so beautiful, isn't it? I mean, that just seems great. The, the problem with that is this is not a sweet thing. This is a thing saying, I don't trust you, and you don't trust me, and we don't trust each other to do right by each other when we're not around each other and we can't see each other. So we're going to call this thing as a witness, and we're going to tell God to keep an eye on each other because we can't trust each other. That's what's going on. So don't buy that jewelry for your spouse because it doesn't, or a friend, because you're actually communicating your distrust of them rather than your affection toward them. Um, and we're going to, I'll prove it to you here in just a minute. But um, according to the NET Bible first edition study notes by Biblical Studies Press, the name Mizpah, which means uh, watch post, sounds like the verb translated, may he watch, like may God watch. Neither Laban nor Jacob felt safe with each other. That's, that's what's going on here. And so they agreed to go their separate ways, trusting the Lord to keep watch at the border. Jacob did not need this treaty, but Laban, perhaps because he had lost his household gods, felt that he did, right? Um, Jacob's got a dis... I mean, Laban's at a disadvantage now. He doesn't have these teraphim, like maybe the inheritance you know, trophies, but also he's lost a bunch of his flocks. I mean, he's, he's been very disadvantaged here. Um, but also to prove to you that this is not a happy thing, look at the very next verse. Verse 50 says, if you mistreat my daughters, or this is in the context of Mizpah, right? This, this thing. Or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, behold, this heap and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. Now, why? Why is Jacob concerned? Why is Laban concerned about polygamy here? That he says, if you take wives besides my daughters, um, well, I, I think, yeah, 
why is why is he concerned about this? Well, he probably cares about he probably cares that Jacob doesn't take other wives so that there's more inheritance for his descendants, right? He right now it's all his descendants. I mean, except for maybe the handmaidens, but insofar as they were his servants, these are all ultimately his descendants. And so if you take another wife, that's going to split things up, you know, and my kids are going to get less, my grandkids. Um, maybe there's even some selfish interest there financially, but I'm not sure how. It's more of a, I'm taking care of my daughters and my, my you know, kids here. Uh, maybe that's what's going on. Uh, verse 52 says, This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal and they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. So God's been faithful, and there's a lot more to come for Jacob. I mean, there's a lot more action in the story of Jacob. We're not by any means done, and Esau's going to come back into the mix. But we ultimately see here that whatever you're doing in life, just focus on following God and going where God wants you to do and doing what God wants you to do with a spirit of humility. Obviously care for your reputation. That's the part you can control, as we say. But also recognize that people may attempt to sully your reputation. It may be that what happens in your own family, like with Rachel, could bring your reputation into question. But whatever happens and however the world looks at you, keep your eyes on God. Um, it's cliche, but I think it's fair to say, as we're talking about nice little trinkets that you can wear around your neck or hang in your house, that you should perform for an audience of one. Oh, it does sound so cliche, but it's true. You're doing this for God, ultimately. Um, and as we're looking at Christian leaders falling around us, it is so sad. I have a personal friend right now who um, was a minister, was a pastor, um, and, and I mean, really strong preacher, just amazing. And I mean, I would have. This is the last guy in the world I would have thought. I mean, I thought this guy was so sold out for God. I never would have thought what's happened. And his life has fallen apart. His marriage has fallen apart because of immorality. And and listen, uh, that's the part that should keep us humble. I, I'm not going to say. I, I know it's popular to say. I'm not going to say that any particular Christian is necessarily psychologically capable of doing the sorts of things that the worst examples would do. But you know what? The lies of the enemy are, are, can be very persuasive. And the, the enemy will give you the quickest way to get as far away from God as he possibly can get you if you give him an opportunity and listen to his lies. Watch your reputation. Watch your reputation. The parts you can't control when other people defame you, you can't do anything about that. You can watch yourself and you can try to be careful of those with whom you have influence in your family or in your organizations or in your church or among your friends. But ultimately, the solution to all of this is daily get up, spend time with the Lord and follow him. That's the solution. I've enjoyed this time we've had together and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Mm-hmm.